My beloved brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, I will be using the Revised Standard Version tonight as I have done on the previous occasions. You will find some of the translations slightly different, but it is uh, very good for us to compare the authorized version with some of the other translations that uh, represent the Greek text very closely, as does the American Revised Standard Version. Now, can we review, in outline form, the work that we've covered so far? In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul likens the community of believers to the temple of the living God. He points out that the faith that is revealed has been so by God's grace, his faithfulness, and our deliverance. That the power of God is above men, and that the wisdom of God is beyond the world. And hence the Apostle's frequent citation of a passage that we should look up now, Jeremiah chapter 9. Verse 23, and the Apostle cites this twice in his first epistle. Thus saith the Lord, Jeremiah 9.23, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practice steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. So Paul points out that the wisdom of God is beyond the world, and that the mystery of God is unveiled in the gospel message, which he hath revealed unto us, says the apostle, citing Isaiah 64. He speaks about the depths of God, the teachings of the Spirit. The Spirit, of course, manifests in vision through the Spirit gifts for those who have the gift of prophecy, those who have the gift of revelation, and presumably for those who have the gift of teaching as well. And the Spirit was also manifest in the written word and the illumination that Spirit-guided uh, leaders in the first century had to expound Old Testament Scripture. Now, to the Greeks, uh, a crucified Messiah was folly. But God has chosen, the, fo God has chosen the, the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, says the Apostle Paul. And Jesus Christ is our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. He cites passages from Isaiah, as the Lord Jesus Christ did to show, in fact, how the cross was a stumbling to Jew and folly to the Greek. The Jews looked for prodigious signings. They looked for a military messiah that would come and redeem them from under the yoke of the Romans. The Greeks had their philosophical theory of ethics, as we pointed out. Basically, their theory of ethics, to know is to do. And as you can see, that this theory of ethics was mutually antagonistic to a theory of ethics which said, I can do all things through him that strengtheneth me. An apostle who didn't 
didn't uh, expound to know is to do, but expounded the opposite, that what I would do, that I do not. The Greeks uh, championed oratory, eloquence, rhetoric, the capability to stand up and to speak eloquently. And very often in Greece, uh, the rhetorician was used by men like Philip of Macedon to arouse up the Greeks to a military pitch to go out on their exploits. And so the Greeks had quite a history of rhetoric. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul considers the relationship of a preacher to his converts. And he points out that whereas the brethren at Corinth were saying to him, Paul, we want the, the deep things of the Spirit, like the Grecians had, the mysteries, the occult, with all its secret catalog of devices that one had to employ to be a member of the cults. So Paul says, we have a mystery, we have a mystery, all right, but we only impart it to the mature. And Corinthians, well, you have this party strife in your midst, you're mere babes. I can't give you uh, the meat of the word. You're still in the milk stage. And so he points out that the preacher has to be very carefully how he builds. If he builds timber and mud and hay and straw roof buildings, they will be destroyed by the fire, says the Apostle Paul. So a man must build gold, silver, stones, and precious stones on the one foundation. And he likens uh, the one foundation to a building where the Apostle Paul is the architect or a master uh, builder commissioned by God himself to build at Corinth. And so he instructed the Corinthians that the same fiery trial that may devour the converts will have to be endured by the preacher. If any man's work is burned up, that is, if his converts that he is instructed, come to the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ in that day, which will disclose the kind of material the convert is, it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And if the convert has been a convert that continues in party strife, a convert who goes back to idolatry, a convert who engages in fornication, the pornea of the religious system of the society, Paul says the fire of judgment will destroy that man and he himself will only be saved but as through fire. And so he warns those who are builders to be careful of the kind of work they're doing. And as the Corinthians would look out and see the great stone surviving the fire of Mummius who came down in 146 B.C., they would have a very appropriate background, knowing that the hovels of wood and, uh, and timber and straw had all been destroyed in the fire, and just these huge stone and metal buildings remained. Now the apostle then has warned the builders, and now he warns the destroyers of the building. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple? And that word in the Greek is naos, and it means the inner sanctuary. And that God's Spirit dwells in you, 316. If anyone destroys God's temple, says the Apostle, 
God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and that temple you are. And we'll see, brothers and sisters, how significant those words are as later on tonight we move into the last four chapters of the Apostle's second epistle and to see what took place with that ecclesia. But he warns those who would defile and destroy the inner temple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Him God will destroy. Now the Apostle makes a comparison between uh, the Father, and of course the Corinthians were his children, and the tutor. And as you can see from the chart, it depicts uh, the work of uh, real building as the Messiah's deputy, and Paul as his steward, and uh, the work that's been going on by these Corinthian teachers who were false apostles and were caught up with the party spirit of the Corinthian ecclesia. And now we move into an analysis of chapter 4. But brothers and sisters, we do well to, uh, to think a little deeper on the social class composition of the Corinthian ecclesia and how it has problems and relates to today. I think we mentioned that in the society of Corinth, we had quite a range of individuals that would make up the ecclesia. We would have, for example, the Jews, converts from Judaism. There were those who were the base in society, no noble pedigree. There were the Greeks who uh, perhaps were uh, well-to-do in the ecclesia, men who were engaged in business that were uh, of a considerable social standing in the Corinthian ecclesia. And because Corinth was such a floating city with such mixed nationalities, no doubt there would be a large number of persons that will just designate as X in this ecclesia. Now Paul commented on the social composition and he said, For consider your call, brethren, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, chapter 126, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Now, can we look at the history of the development of the Christadelphian community? Now, put yourself, if you can, back in the period of 1863, 1865, when the American government is requiring the Christadelphians to be registered as a religious body because civil war has broken out in America between the North and between the South. Well, how are you going to set up your ecclesias? What kind of organizational structure are you going to have? Are you going to cast lots for ecclesial office? Are you going to uh, elect officers on the basis of majority vote? How are you going to do it? Well, Robert Roberts wrote, All experience shows that a system of paid officialship in divine things tends to corruption. And we'll see how this was a problem in a few minutes in the Corinthian Ecclesia. By drawing to it idle minds, he says, look at the present state of Christendom. 
Consider the hideous fossilism of the Roman and Anglican communions and the invertebrate placidity of nonconformity. This is what has come with 1,500 years of endowment and organization. So you get the mold that uh, Robert Roberts is moving in. Now a comment uh, in The Truth of the 19th Century is, in, is interesting. Robert Roberts pointed out that the appointment of brethren is not the appointment of brethren to exercise authority, but of men to serve. There were to be no committees, no offices with distinctive titles, such as secretaries and presidents, and in all the cases, the name of brethren was to be preserved. Well, how do you think democracy would work out then? As we mentioned before, uh, in Richmond, Virginia, where John Thomas engaged in a lot of his preaching work, the believers got together, and at the end of the meeting, they had uh, a show of hands as to who would preside the next week, who would exhort, what time they would meet. Now, you can see this would become cumbersome when you got up to 30 or 40 members. To have everyone involved in these mundane decisions became very cumbersome and time-consuming. So, democracy was implemented. Granted, it was recognized it did not have the kind of scriptural backing that the pioneers would have liked. But what are you going to do? You don't have apostles that can delegate the appointment of elders to serve in specified posts. You don't have a Timothy that you can go by apostolic authority and set up, or a Titus. And so it became. Over a wide field, it has become manifest that the hard and contentious spirit of democracy for which our arrangements leave too much scope is not favorable to the development of the spirit of gentleness and holiness and love that belong to the house of God. Quite a comment by Robert Roberts. Purely de democratic and annual electoral systems appeal too directly, too frequently to those feelings that lead to jealousy and contention. We have known ecclesias where all spiritual life has been killed by the rivalries connected with the question of who is to be appointed to the various offices. Now, despite the fact that Scripture says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. And it was said of our early Christadelphian community, by a newspaper. The Christadelphians were not just a proletarian grouping, that's the working class, but a grouping drawn from the lowest strata of the proletariat. At times the coffers were empty, consequent on the large grain and relief of the poor among the brethren. At times the ranks would thin out owing to the immigration of the more de desperate. Christadelphians are particularly low-class sect. And one last quotation. Isaac Collier comments on the period uh, when Robert Roberts ministered to the Christadelphian community. This may be an appropriate moment, says Isaac Collier, to offer an explanation as to why it was that in those days there were so few speakers and we repeatedly hear of extra work being piled on one who was already overloaded, Robert Roberts. The explanation surely lies in the fact that there were very few who had studied the scriptures in the early teens 
when learning is easy and memory keen. Memory keen. A good lesson to our young fellows here. There were still fewer who had been given opportunity to practice speaking in helpful classes for mutual improvement. Most converts were hard-working men with little spare time for study and no experience of a kind that would give them ready utterance. But alas, look what's happened today. If the Christadelphians were a particularly low-class sect in the times of John Thomas and Robert Roberts, you know, a particularly low-class sect, look what's happened today. We've got uh, university students, we've got architects, we've got uh, accountants, bankers, teachers. We have a whole change of the social strata that once was indicative of the Christadelphian community. Now let's look and see what's happened. Our social class has gone up. It isn't really true of our community. Consider your call, brethren. Not many were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble. Now, it's true that we don't have a lot of members in the upper echelons of society, but look how our social class composition has gone up the scale from the time of Roberts and Thomas. Now, it's going to involve problems, brothers and sisters, and it does us well to look back in retrospect, see the problems they had in Corinth, and see the problems we've had in the growth of our community. Let's take uh, one very obvious illustration. Lecture titles. Now, I managed to pick up a few of these, what I figured were rather bold titles, um, moving through Australia. One of these is, Bible Truths Not Taught in the Churches. And the Holy Bible is pictured going out of this church. Another one is, God Will uh, Destroy a Communist Catholic Confederacy. And so on. Christ Will Overthrow the Vatican is another one I came across. Now, just supposing you're a, a school superintendent in the area where Euroclesia is sponsoring this kind of lecture, and in big, bold print, a half-page ad goes in the paper, uh, Christ to overthrow communist Catholic confederacy. And you come to work in the Catholic section of your school system, uh, have some questions to ask about the Christadelphians holding this kind of a lecture, and here you are supposing to uh, represent the school system. There's going to be some squirming. Or supposing you're an architect who builds Roman Catholic schools. And you're, uh, some of your clients see this kind of advertisement in the paper. Now, needless to say, you get the point. When we come to an A-B meeting and we want to discuss what kind of lecturing we're going to hold, what kind of titles we're going to hold, the brother who, by virtue of his social position... Uh, is going to have feedback from the community that's going to be adverse on his social status, he's going to be the very man that's going to uh, work in the ecclesia, and maybe even through the ABs, to water down the kind of demarcation that the pioneers would have made between truth and error. Now, those lecture titles aren't anything out of the ordinary if compared with ones used by John Carter and Robert Roberts and Dr. Thomas. Now that's something, brothers and sisters, I've spent a lot of time on because I think it's very, very important today that as our social class structure goes up in the community, let's be sure that it's not having an adverse effect upon the running of our ecclesias. 
And one of the sources of feedback that may be adverse is the way we try to water down our lecture titles because of the way it will reflect upon our social class in society. And we mentioned another one uh, the last time we addressed ourselves to social class. The way individuals who are up on the social class scale would employ their managerial techniques to manipulate in our business meetings or in our interfacial relationships. Now we have to be careful that we use the values that come from God's word and not the values that come from the society in which we work. But enough said on social class composition. Brothers and sisters, it's worth our most serious consideration to see how our community has reacted to a growth in social class composition on the social scale and our attitude to lectures, the kind of titles we hold, the support that we get for our lectures, the readiness to go out and knock on the doors. I mean, if you're a big uh, school superintendent, are you going to go down with uh, the ecclesia and knock on the doors all through maybe the poorest section of the city? Well, this is the test as to whether or not we're motivated by the principles of God's word. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul is having a problem at Corinth, and the problem is they're undermining his influence. And so he says, verse 1, this is how one should regard us as servants. And that word, brothers and sisters, servants, is not the usual word doulos for slave. It's a word that means the under oarsman. He is um, subject to only one master, he's saying, as an under oarsman. I'm a servant of Christ and steward of the mysteries of God. And steward is a different word in the Greek. And the word steward here relates to one who has charge over a house. And he has delegated responsibilities like keeping an expense account, uh, ministering the food. Jesus picks this up in Luke 16 as well. So he's likening the house, the Corinthians. His delegated responsibility, a steward to feed, care, and look after the mysteries of God in the Corinthian Ecclesia. Moreover, says the apostle, it is required of stewards that they be trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged, Greek word means examined, by you or by any human court. I do not even judge myself, says the apostle. I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then every man will receive his commendation from God. Now, brothers and sisters in America, we have a religious group that has followed through the teaching of Benjamin Wilson. And it's the Church of God of the Abrahamic Covenant. And they hold the doctrine of immortal emergence. And what this view is, that the saints who die um, have no condemnation because they're in Christ Jesus. And therefore they have their sins forgiven each night when they pray to God for forgiveness. And so according to this religious group, when Jesus Christ comes back, these people rise immortal from the grave. And the doctrine hence is called immortal emergence. 
Now, I don't know of a better passage in Scripture, in my opinion, brothers and sisters, to falsify the view that one comes forth immortal, because here's the Apostle Paul saying, look, Corinthians, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted, says the Apostle. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, the Apostle is claiming here that even if he may have kept uh, certain prescriptions of the gospel accurately, he may have loved his neighbor, he may have um, exercised Christ-like teaching in his work with the Ecclesia, but he says, what about those things that I'm ignorant of that I ought to have done, that I'm not even aware of? He says, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but he says, I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, he says, do not pronounce judgment before the time comes. And that's a very sober warning to us that our great man like the Apostle Paul could say at this time in his life, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. And one other passage that is used by this religious group, we won't examine now, but it is in 1 Corinthians 15 where he talks about being raised incorruptible. And the Greek word there for raised is agyro. And agyro does not mean to spring forth immortal. It's used, for example, of Lazarus, who was raised from the ground. He certainly wasn't raised immortal. And agyro is used for raising a crop, and a crop isn't raised overnight. And so the doctrine that the, that the dead come forth immortal if they're righteous is condemned on the basis of this text and is not really supported by the use of this Greek word agyro, raised incorruptible, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now the apostle goes down in verse 8, and filled with irony, he says to these Corinthians, already you're filled, already you've become rich, without us you have become kings, and would that you did reign, says the apostle, so that we might share the rule with you. Now just imagine the irony here. These Corinthians who are accusing the apostle of giving them uh, only the, uh, the very elementary things to think and to reason about, Paul tells them that he couldn't give them anything very deep because they were men of the flesh. As babes in Christ I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And so he betrays these rather uh, supercilious Corinthians. He says, you're already filled. You're reigning as kings like you're in the kingdom of God. Doesn't that sound like the Laodiceans? But he says, look at us, apostles. For I think, verse 9, that God has exhibited us, apostles, as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we are in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are ill-clad and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become and are now as the refuse of the world, the offscarring of all things. 
think you can see, brothers and sisters, that the Apostle Paul had very, very little to offer to a Greek in the Ecclesia who was very conscious of his social class. How would he like to be put alongside the Apostle Paul? I think, says the Apostle, that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. And do you know what that word refers to in the Greek text? It refers to the custom of the Romans after the Isthmian games were held every two years in Corinth. They would take out the criminals and they would lead them through naked, chained together, into the great Colosseum. So he says, we are exhibited, we are paraded as a spectacle, as last of all at the end of the uh, Isthmian Games. He says, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are a theater, he says, to the angels above who look down upon us as men of faith, and to the men of the world who despise us. And there you can imagine the Corinthians would envision the Apostle Paul led out with all the other criminals, naked before all the people who gazed on, and then they sewed them up in animal skins and then turned the dogs loose on them. And the Apostle Paul says, that's what we're like. He says, what advantageth me, he says, if I fought with beasts at Ephesus in 1 Corinthians 15. Again, he's alluding to his work in the truth at Ephesus to those individuals that were taken in naked and chained to be given to the wild beasts. He says, we are fools for Christ's sake. And you can see how he was a fool for Christ's sake. And down in verse 13, he says, we are as the refuse of the world, the off-scouring of all things. And that word off-scouring again has a pedigree that would have been known to the Greeks because off-scouring designated the worst of criminals who was fed up for a year in the jails. And then at the end of the year, the heathen practice was to take this man out and publicly burn him alive, ceremoniously, to make redemption for the sins of the city for a year. And Paul says, you know what we're like? We're just like the worst of all criminals let out and publicly burned, ceremoniously burned, to atone for the city. And that's the word he uses when he refers to himself as the off-scouring of all things. And brethren, can you turn with me to the second epistle and we'll work backwards now and see how the Corinthians reacted. Second Corinthians 13. And we'll see what claims these uh, Judaizers in particular at Corinth were making on him. First claim, verse 3. Since you desire proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful in you. But he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. Now the point is here that the Corinthians are demanding of the Apostle Paul proof that Christ is really speaking in him. And boy, we would wonder, how can these Corinthians be so obtuse not to know that Christ was speaking through the Apostle Paul? Now, I think we may read into this narrative that what had happened at Corinth was some Judaizers showed up from Corinth 
with letters of recommendation from the Jerusalem Ecclesia. And these individuals claim to have had a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ after he was raised from the dead, maybe. He appeared to 500 individuals. And these brethren would show up at Corinth and they would demand proof that Christ was speaking to the apostle. That's why in chapter 15 he says, God, the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to me as one born out of due season. He was considered a mere abortion by these Judaizers at Jerusalem. And so they wanted to know, they wanted a sign, they wanted demonstrations that Christ was in fact speaking through him. Now, there were other challenges uh, leveled at the Apostle Paul. They wanted to know, for example, uh, why he vacillated on his decision to come to Corinth. Was he a man that was a yes and no man in making his decisions? And furthermore, in chapter 10, they said even when he does show up, chapter 10, verse 10, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech of no account. In other words, the Apostle Paul made a short trip up to Corinth to try and straighten out this Judaizing problem, and after he left, they said, uh, oh, his letters are weighty and strong. He's a pretty good man at writing uh, when he's away off in Ephesus, but when he comes, what is he? Uh, his bodily presence is weak. His speech is of no account. In other words, the apostle had absolutely nothing to offer the Greek. The Spartan who championed in his physical prowess, uh, the Greek who... Uh, looked upon rhetoric and eloquence as being something divine. And there comes the Apostle Paul, beaten and weary, the off-scarring of the earth. And he comes up from Ephesus and they say, well, look at him when he comes. Who is he? Bodily presence is weak. Speech is contemptible. The only thing he can do is write pretty good letters when he's away from Corinth. Verse 11. Let such people understand, says the Apostle, that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we venture to class or to compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves, the Judaizers, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. And in verse 17, he quotes that Jeremiah passage. Let him who boasts, boasts of the Lord. For it is not the man who commends himself that is accepted, but the man whom the Lord commends. And now we take a little look at the way the apostle approached the problems of Corinth. He was uh, accused of being worldly. It would appear that they thought he had smuggled some of the money that was allegedly in a collection at Corinth to support the uh, poor saints at Jerusalem. Verse 2, the Apostle Paul says of the same chapter, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who uh, suspect us of acting in a worldly fashion. So he points out, though we live in the world, we're not carrying on a worldly war, for the weapons of our warfare are not worldly, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments, says the apostle, and every proud obstacle to the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. 
being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. And so you see that the Apostle Paul is quite a gladiator. He's a man who says, I pommel my spiritual body. I'm not like a shadow boxer that you may see down at the Isthmian Games. So run that you may obtain. He's a disciplined man of the Spirit, and he's able to destroy arguments and every proud obstacle to the knowledge of God. And he takes every thought captive to obey Christ Jesus. And then he levels in. Verse 12 of chapter 12. And what I do, he says, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. Now remember, brothers and sisters, how serious this was. We took a look at the organizational structure of the Ecclesia. You had apostles at the top, then prophets, then teachers, and then you had your organization of the Ecclesia. God appointed some apostles, first apostles, then prophets, teachers, and so on with the spirit gifts. Now when someone showed up at Corinth uh, and said, I'm an apostle, and began to subvert the Corinthians, well, you can imagine how devastating this would be. They would be cutting in at the organizational level right at the top, and able, therefore, to infiltrate the whole ecclesia by their influence. So chapter 11, verse 3, the apostle says, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and preaches another Jesus than the one we preach, or if you receive a different spirit from the one we, you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you submit to it readily enough. These Corinthians who said you know, things weren't deep enough in the truth for them. I think that I am not in the least inferior to these superlative apostles. And even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not in knowledge. In every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. Now, brethren, there's a good point here. We've been troubled in our community by the allegorical interpretations of Genesis 1 through 3. And not least of these has been the serpent. And it has been argued in the pages of our literature, that the serpent, really, in the narrative, just portrays the uh, sinful process that went on in Eve's mind. Now, if there's one passage outside of Genesis 3 that would falsify that position, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And look at the parallels. The Apostle Paul says, first of all, there has been a gospel preached. God gave a commandment in Eden. You see the parallel. The serpent came along and propounded an enticing alternative. False teachers show up at Corinth. The serpent seduced Eve. What happened in Corinth? They were led astray, RSB. What was the result? Catastrophe here. And what's the result at Corinth? Catastrophe also. Now notice the parallel. Let's suppose, for example, that the serpent of Genesis was non-literal. Does your parallel fit? Here you have uh, Eve, 
being seduced by her own desires, notwithstanding she said to be very good. But here you have the Corinthians seduced by a certainly an objective tempter, and yet the Corinthians, who were part of fallen humanity, a law which worked in their members, that when they would do good, evil is present with them, are said, in fact, to be tempted from without. And yet Eve, who is married very good, is tempted from within. Does the parallel fit? No, the parallel does not fit, and it breaks down. And so you have God giving a command in Eden, like the, like the false preachers, propounding another alternative to the apostles' teaching. The preaching of the false apostles was, of course, false, just like the serpent's alternative was a lie. Eve fell, Corinthians seduced, and both resulted in destruction. And furthermore, brothers and sisters, why is it said that the serpent was uh, a beast or a creature more subtle than any other beast of the field? Why the comparison if the serpent was non-literal? And why was the serpent cursed to crawl in its belly and to eat dust all the days of his life? And so what is literal in Genesis is picked up in a figurative sense in Corinthians. But the literal must always be the basis of the symbol. If you don't have a literal, you can never have a symbol. And so in Genesis 1 to 3, we have the literal on which subsequent passages of the scriptures build in figurative and allegorical ways. So the serpent at Corinth was these false teachers, paralleling the serpent, a literal creature, that operated to seduce Eve. And so the apostle works through the narrative. In verse 13 he says, Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's not strange if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Now, for our young people, this might be a problem. Somebody may raise this as a passage to support the view that Satan must really be a fallen angel devil, because it says here he's a Satan and he's disguised as an angel of light. The brothers and sisters, look at the context. Is this some malicious, maligning, fallen angel? No. It refers to deceitful workmen context. And it says that Satan disguised himself as an angel of light. Well, it's the teaching of the churches that he was an angel of light. So it is not strange, says the apostle, if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So in the context, we have a Satan in the ecclesia, false apostles, deceitful workmen, who try to seduce the ecclesia from the simplicity that is in Christ Jesus. And this is the Satan from the context. And now we move to chapter 12. The apostle has told them, my bodily presence may be weak, I may be unskilled in speaking, but I am not in knowledge. And here he comes through in chapter 12. I must boast, says the apostle, there is nothing to be gained by it, but I will go to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ, says the apostle, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. And boy, if we thought chapter 11, verse 14 was a problem, now we really move into the problems. 
I knew a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Well, I think you can see the problems that uh, are in that passage. But let's work through it systematically. It's sometimes argued that this passage alludes to somebody other than the Apostle Paul. Some say that the Apostle Paul was stoned at Antioch. And when he was stoned, he died there, and his soul left the body about 14 years ago and went to heaven, and there he met an old friend, caught up into paradise, the third heaven. Now, against this view, there are two very serious objections. First of all, if you look up the account in Acts of the Apostles, it doesn't say that the Apostle Paul actually died. It says they supposed that he was dead. And when the disciples came around him, he revived. And then, brothers and sisters, the very next day, the Apostles out in his preaching work. A real exhortation for us. Well, is this some other person that the Apostle Paul is alluding to? No, it cannot be another person. Verse 7. And to keep me, he says, from being too elated by the abundance of revelation, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I besought the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, brothers and sisters, it would make no point at all if the Apostle Paul was alluding to somebody else that saw these visions and revelations. No, the Apostle Paul is catching the Corinthians by guile. He's presenting his credentials as an apostle on the basis of his revelations. But he says in verse 7, lest I should be too elated by the abundance of revelation, a thorn in the flesh was given me. Now, that statement would be meaningless if it were somebody else that saw these visions and revelations. I knew a man in Christ, he says. The man that the Apostle Paul knew in Christ was none other than himself. And this is the way he's presenting his credentials to the Corinthians. He says, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Now, he's referring to himself. He's not referring to anybody else caught up. Aha, says the sectarian. I guess uh, the righteous must go to heaven after all. But notice, the Greek verb, herpatso, does not mean either... That verb is used of the wolf who catcheth away the sheep in John 10. It's used of no man shall pluck them out of my hand. It's also used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 17, where he talks about those who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Carpazzo, it doesn't mean up at all. It means caught away. No direction is denoted. And so in the passage, it reads in the Greek, 
who 14 years ago was caught away to the third heaven. Now, brothers and sisters, where is this third heaven? Are there layers of heaven above the earth where the Apostle Paul was caught up to? No. We have a clue. Verse 3. I know, know that this man was caught away, or caught up, into paradise. And so wherever this third heaven is, it's the same place as paradise. Now, where else in the New Testament do we uh, find reference to paradise? Well, immediately we think of the thief on the cross. Lord, remember me when thou comest in thy kingdom. And Jesus replied to him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. I'm telling you this very day, you will be with me in paradise. Now the thief's request was, When you come in your kingdom or kingly power. And so when Christ comes in his kingdom is identified with paradise. And also, brothers and sisters, you have the reference in Revelation chapter 2, that those who overcome will be granted the right to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So Revelation 2, Luke 23, identify paradise with the kingdom age. And also the Greek word translated into Septuagint. The Hebrew word translated in the Septuagint, paradise, or paradisos in the Greek, is used of the kingdom in Isaiah 51 and Ezekiel chapter 36. Look up those passages at your leisure afterwards. Isaiah 51, 3 and Ezekiel 36. So the Apostle Paul was caught up, or caught away, to the kingdom period. And he says, whether in the body... Or what of the body, I do not know. Now, it's interesting, friends and brothers and sisters, that the Apostle Paul wasn't sure whether he was in the body or out of the body. Yet look at how many sectarians are awfully sure that this passage proves souls go to heaven. But the Apostle says, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure whether I was in the body or out of the body. But God knows. Now, what did he mean when he says, I don't know whether I'm in the body, whether I was in the body, or out of the body? Well, it's much like the visions that we have in Acts of the Apostles. For example, there was Peter in Acts chapter 12, verse 7. And an angel of the Lord appeared unto Peter. Remember when he was chained between two soldiers? And the angel told him to dress himself, to put on his sandals, verse 8. And verse 9, he went out and followed him, but he did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. So the apostle says, I, about 14 years ago, I saw a vision. Now whether I participated in that vision bodily, or whether I just participated in my mind, he says, I don't know, but God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which was not lawful for man to utter. So you can see, brothers and sisters, the way the apostle, with uh, obviously mock modesty in the context here, portrays himself as somebody, a friend that he knew, caught up to the third heaven. None other than the apostle Paul, 
and he's vindicating the challenge, but he's not really an apostle. We want a sign, said the Corinthians, that Christ is speaking in you. So he tells them about the vision that he had, that it was even unlawful for a man to utter the great things which he saw. And unless he should be too elevated by what he saw, a messenger of Satan was given to harass him, to keep him from being too elated. Now, brothers and sisters, in a few minutes, we must move through 1 Corinthians chapter 8. The apostle now is dealing with those who think they're strong. See, in this ecclesia, you had a certain faction that uh, had considerable knowledge that in itself was right. So they had written to him about food offered to idols. So the apostle says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. And brothers and sisters, he's quoting their letter, their correspondence to him. And if you have a revised standard version, this is uh, put in quotation marks. All of us possess knowledge was their words. Knowledge pops up, says the apostle, but love builds up. Notice he's going back to the image of building this building. If anyone imagines he knows something, says the apostle, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Verse 4, Hence, says the eating of food offered to idols, we know that, he quotes their letter, an idol has no real existence. And, he quotes their letter, there is no God but one. For although there be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, for whom we are all things, for whom are all things, and for whom we exist. And there's the bite for the Corinthians, these who would parade their knowledge and uh, go about uh, irrespective of the conscience of another brother. The apostle says, you exist all right, but you don't exist to exercise your own liberty. You exist for God Almighty. However, not all possess this knowledge, he says, verse 7. But some, through being hereto accustomed to idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Now here's the, the situation. There is meat that has been offered to idols. Now the strong brethren say, it doesn't matter whether it's been offered to idols or not. We can sit down at a feast with these heathen and partake of the meat, because we know that an idol has no real existence. But to some of those Corinthians, who were uh, probably in the past had paid very many visits to the temple of Aphrodite, who had sat down to a feast with my lord Serapis at the temple, they weren't able to do this because it defiled their conscience. On the basis of their past experience, this was a violation of their conscience. So notice what the apostle says. He says, food won't commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do eat. Only take care lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you, a man of knowledge, at table in an idol's temple, might he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge... 
this weak man is destroyed, so he agrees in principle, brothers and sisters, with the strong elements of the ecclesia. But knowledge, he says, must be accompanied by agape, a self-sacrificing spirit, thus sinning against your brethren, verse 12, and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. Therefore, says the apostle, if food is the cause of my brother's failing, I will never eat meat, lest I cause my brother to fall. Now, what a lesson here. But can we cast it, cast it in a more modern uh, mode? In Tasmania, we had discussion with some... Uh, one was a young brother, and the other was a young chap who is uh, in the home of a Christadelphian. And these were long hairs. They had long hair... Uh, considerably longer, I suppose, than anyone here, these two fellows. Now, this was a source of embarrassment to the Christadelphians because when we went out on our campaign work, it sort of was, you know, pretty obvious that it was incongruous for one to be going along with long hair as part of the Christadelphian community. And so uh, a couple of us decided we would have a chat to these two fellows. And, of course, they're pretty, uh, pretty conned up for this. They've been through... Uh, a number of discussions before and with uh, more delight than you can imagine they were ready for it long hair good that's our dish we'll discuss this now probably they'd had uh, problems at school and they've uh, heard what's gone on and so we began to discuss well the one fellow says how do you know what's long you say my hair is long I don't think my hair is long I think my hair is just normal because if you go and see my kids at school you'll see that my hair is just about ordinary for them. Well, that's pretty difficult. How do you show that when the apostle said in chapter 11, if a man have long hair, it is degrading to him, and does not nature itself teach you, says the apostle, that for a man to have long hair, it is degrading to him. And so you see, the young fellow was opting out on a really good point, and he knew he had a good situation. Because unless you can define what long is, He's got you. Because after all, you don't know his friends back at school, and he claims they have hair down to their shoulders, and his is only down partly down his neck, and therefore what's long by your fashion just reflects that you're an old Victorian. Well, that's his view of long and short. Well, a couple pressed the argument that he was conforming to the world, that by wearing this long hair, he was virtually placarding himself as being part of the society. Well, he objected. He said, look, I can, uh, I can talk to guys with long hair. You, you're just squares. You can't meet these fellows that have the long hair. So I can preach the gospel to people you can't. So you see the rationalization that was beginning to work in. Well, we finally came back to Corinthians. Now, obviously, the problem of long hair was precisely a problem like meets at Corinth. Now, clearly... The long hair was a source of offense to some of the brethren on that campaign. And quite frankly, if I was going to knock on doors in Tasmania, I wouldn't choose for my companion one with long hair. He might be able to make out quite well in Allen Gardens or Sydney Domain talking to some people, but on the average, he would have difficulty in more homes than he would find it easy, in my opinion, to communicate. Well... This one chap is a brother. Now, what is he going to do? 
He can stand back and say, well, why should my liberty be judged by another man's conscience? He can do that if he wants. But is he acting out of the agape that the Apostle Paul refers to in Corinthians? Is the spirit he's employing the spirit of the Apostle Paul? It certainly isn't, is it? Does it sound like the Apostle Paul? He says, just as I try to please all men in everything I do, not seeking mine own advantage, but that of many. Now, brothers and sisters, conceivably the same thing would hold true on a wide area of problems. Take cigarette smoking. The brother says, well, you show me where the Bible says cigarette smoking is wrong, and then I'll give up my cigarette smoking. But isn't that putting the emphasis in quite the wrong direction? What's right about his cigarette smoking? And how does he respect the consciences of other brethren for whom this is defiling? If he acts out of the agape that the Apostle Paul refers to, then by virtue of his brethren asking him not to speak, he ought to let his liberty be judged by their consciences. And the same can occur with our sisters. Fashions change, and we all know this. In our school teaching, we observe uh, skirts get shorter and shorter, and the bell bottoms get bigger and bigger, and there's quite a fluctuation in fashions as they come and go. But there's one thing, brothers and sisters, that young and old were brought to the bar of our ecclesial standard, and we can't circumvent it. Now, where do our elders draw the line? Here's the problem. If a brother acknowledges that his liberty is judged by another man's conscience, then where are our elders setting the line of conscience? Are they setting the line of conscience to make us a notable example to the communities in which we live? Or are our elders fostering the kind of relationships that will break down the distinctiveness of the principles of purity and truth that we stand for? Now, it isn't always that long hair goes with drugs. It isn't always that long hair goes with smokes. But it is a general association of the society in which we live. And one only has to look at the newspapers to see that this is true. Now, to our young people and to those who aren't so young, here's the question. Are you prepared to be like the Apostle Paul, willing to let your judgment be molded by the consciences of your fellow brethren. Because whether our hair is six inches longer or six inches shorter probably won't make that all that much difference to ourselves, just like meat. Whether I eat meat or whether I don't eat meat, Paul says, it uh, doesn't really matter. I can get along quite well. Now, if we act out of the principles of agape, if the knowledge that we have is molded by that sacrificial spirit, to build up and to edify the ecclesia, then brothers and sisters will be very sensitive to the consciences of one another. And one thing in the truth, none of us is an island. We're responsible for our influence and our example. And here's where our older brethren and our older sisters can set the example of the conscience of the Christadelphian community. And so I leave you the words of the Apostle Paul, a man who was um, the refuse, the offscouring of all things, 
A man who had visions and revelations greater than anyone. But he says, Take care of your liberty, lest the liberty that you exercise become a stumbling block to others. For all things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. 